here just to welcome you to the new writing series. This is the last of our events for the right for the winter. And I'm here to thank you for your presence here. Uh, to thank Marie Blanco for being here. To thank uh, Taylor and um, Gina. Gina, Gina. <laughs> uh, for all the work they've done in organizing, putting together this event. And um, I have to let you know, as I said, that this is the last one for winter, which doesn't mean that we're going to have a very interesting new writing series in, in this spring. So you are taking a little of, of our eight uh, series classes. I'm sure I'm going to be meeting you in here again. For those of you in my class, see you Monday. Uh, we're going to be doing some kind of public reading. So pay attention to what Marili does so well here with us again. And this is my, it is my pleasure to introduce Taylor, our MFA student, who in turn will introduce Maribi right now. Thank you, Taylor. Maribi Salvin is an interpreter, award-winning writer, and role model to a global community of immigrants, women, and other underrepresented people. She is first and foremost a storyteller, adapting her natural skill into a tool of change when she realized that the disenfranchised women's voices in immigration narrative needed an outlet. Although, according to her, she just felt it necessary to break cliches about Filipinos in particular. In her words, I'd like to think that we are more than the sum of spring rolls. She is the author of 17 books ranging from award-winning children's stories to novels, her most recently published novel, The Mango Bride, delves into Filipino culture, immigrant experience in the U.S., the mail-order bride industry, gender, class, and race relations, and domestic violence. Marivi says, her work interpreting calls for the National Domestic Violence Hotline informed the plot, but her main intention was never to write as an activist. She is concerned with, to quote her, providing, a, providing an accessible story that deals with issues relevant to our times, creates new conversations, or alters the direction of existing ones. In hoping to bring awareness both to and about the Filipino community, Marivi says she fell upon, like many good writers, the impetus to change the discourse surrounding her culture. Her novel was a success, to put it lightly. The Mango Bride won the Carlos Polanco Memorial Award for Literature in 2011, is included on the syllabus at the California Western School of Law, and is on the recommended reading list for all American diplomats assigned to the Philippines. Her novel surpassed even the, even the threshold of the literary. It inspired countless women who shared experience with, experiences with Marivi's characters. In turn, Marivi found inspiration and courage. In 2014 and 15, she organized the Saving Beverly fundraisers, which raised nearly $15,000 for nonprofits that support immigrant survivors of domestic violence. The San Diego event raised enough money to gain legal residency for nine immigrant domestic violence survivors. If taken as a whole, what we learned from Marivi's writing career is that the first rule of thumb is to tell a good story, one that focuses on what is authentic about the oftentimes troubling experience of navigating identities. Marivi wanted to shatter a stereotype and in the process change the lives of people for whom that stereotype has real-world consequences. As writers and community members, we can only hope to emulate Marivi's impact. Without further ado, Marivi Sullivan. Thank you so much, Taylor. Um, I'd like to thank Professor Cristina de Garagarza for inviting me um, to speak here. Um, it's been a while since I 
I did back. I used to teach at UCSD as an adjunct lecturer. Um, but uh, but when I stopped working here is when I started writing the novel. So I guess I, it kind of worked out. <laughs> so um, I'm going to have three parts to my um, to my talk today. I'm going to try to teach it like a class. I'll talk about the path to publication, and then after that I'll read a section from The Mango Bride, and after that I'll read a section from the second novel I've been working on. Um, so um, the reason why I started um, making, I, I created a PowerPoint about the path to publication was that um, people always asked me, you know, when, when my book first came out, well, how, two questions. How long did it take you to write, and how many pages is it? So the short answer is, it took about two years to write to draft, and then another three more to get to publication because it took a while with the publisher. And then um, it's, it comes out to about 334 pages. I don't know, I haven't memorized it. So I'm, I'm gonna detail the path to publication, or at least my path to publication, because I've understood that um, everybody has a different journey towards it, and sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short, and this is my individual life journey. So the journey began in 2007 with this book. It's called Spooky Mo. It's a short fiction collection of horror stories, and it's a pun on oh, children here. No, they're not. Uh, it's a pun on um, a Filipino pun, which translates loosely to "you scary cunt." And what that means is all of the aggressors are women, and most of the victims are men. So, um, so that's why your scary cunt or your scary vagina. That was the you know, genesis of this short story collection. And um, this was around the time I was still teaching at UCSD. And while I was teaching, I happened to meet a literary agent named Taryn Fagerness, who was at the time working with the Sandra Dykstra Agency, which at the time was representing um, Amy Tan. So she really liked it. She suggested um, uh, to her agency that she would like to uh, give me literary representation. And they said, no, because I was an unknown writer in the United States, and um, nobody publishes an unknown writer's coll debut collection of short fiction. You need to come out with a novel. So Taryn asked me, do you have a novel? And I said, no. <laughs> she said, well, too bad. No novel, no literary representation. So my first step, you have to understand the average novel has 75,000 to 100,000 words. Apparently, historical novels are more. Comes up to about 130,000. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he had never written more than 10,000 words on any one story. So my first step to the, towards publication was to con conquer my fear of writing a novel. And I did that by joining Na NaNoWriMo in 2008. Mm -hmm. How many of you have joined NaNoWriMo or? Yeah. Yay! Okay, so, so you know what it is. It's basically a marathon for nerds. Um, <laughs> because you commit to doing this long, writing a 50,000 word novel in 30 days, in November. It happens every year. Apparently it comes up, it is accredited for producing more creative output. Nobody talks about quality. than all of the MFA programs combined in the entire world. And people join it every year the way they join the Boston or the New York Marathon, except they never leave their seats. So um, 50,000 words in 30 days, whether or not you cook a turkey in November, comes out to 1,667 words a day. Three single-spaced uh, space type pages every day for 30 days. 
So I knew I had to do this to get over this fear. And I prepped for it by telling everybody I'm gonna be a little bit unavailable. Um, and I had to create a writing space. And then I had to fulfill civic duties because I don't know if you remember, maybe you were all too young to vote at the time that that was election year. So in October, I hopped a ride to Vegas. I canvassed for votes in Nevada. I helped Obama get elected to his fir first term. My duty was done. And right then, uh, I could start writing. My daughter, Sophia, was five at the time. Um, so I created my writing space. Luckily, we have great weather in San Diego. I could do it outside. And I learned to write from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. every day. So I'm not really a morning person, but that was those were the only two hours in the day that nobody else was awake at the time and didn't have cats yet. So I wrote for two hours straight, and then my day began. And every moment in between, I was writing. By the end of November 2008, I had a 50,000-word novel. But only 26 of those words were any good. And those 26 have survived the first draft in NaNoWriMo all the way to publication. They're the first uh, words in the first sentence of an, my novel, and I memorized it. I think it goes, Marcella was barely thinking when she took a knife from the plate of mangoes and stabbed Senora Concha in the chest. So those 26 words survived <laughs> five years of revising. So what did I do? I threw out everything else and started over with that first sentence and plot. The second step is write your second draft. So I joined a read and critique group uh, led by Judy Reeves, who is uh, part of a, a founding member of the San Diego Writers, Inc., which is a nonprofit. Um, organization in San Diego that supports the writing community. They have day classes, week-long classes, novel writing classes. They even have a novel writing, no, they have a day-long nine-to-five, nine-hour writing marathon one day in June. And if you can get your friends to pool together $100, you can join it and spend an entire day just writing. So with Judy's group, I wrote a chapter every other week for two years. I wrote everywhere. I wrote in the homes of friends. I wrote on cruises. I even wrote a car crash scene while driving to LA. I wasn't driving, but, um, but we had some downtime. <laughs> and my daughter was in um, ballet, and so um, when she was at ballet, I would sit out in Balboa Park and type. And um, while I was there, I met all these interesting people. I don't know if you've ever been to Balboa Park, but this is a performance, performance art duo called um, Tribal Baroque. And um, they were creating such beautiful music at the time that instead of letting that detract from what I was doing, I simply wrote them into a chapter, which also got into the book. So by December 6, 2010, I had a manuscript, 34 chapters, 411 pages, 135,000 words, and a working title in the service of secrets. So then I had to write a query letter because um, Right now, literary agents are the gatekeepers to the publishers. Most publishers uh, will not look at a manuscript unsolicited unless it's sent to them by a literary agent that they know and have a working relationship with. So luckily, I had taken a how to, write a write, how to Write a Query Letter class at San Diego Writers, Inc., led by none other than that same writer, Taryn Fagerness. So I sent her that letter that she had helped me write, and she loved the novel. She actually read it through Christmas, and um, she was willing to represent me. There was a slight problem. Hi, Robin, there's a spot over hey, here. Hey, Harvey. 
Robin and um, Caroline are in my current writing group, and uh, I'm using that to write the Parking novel. Parking is a real challenge. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much for bringing me. We're here. Sweetheart, there are two seats up there you can sit. We apologize to you and everyone else. No, 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 no. It's okay. We're only on step, I'm going to say, three of the path to publication. Fifty? Three. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Taryn loved my novel. There was a slight problem. She could not represent me because she had left the standardized for agency and started her own agency, which only dealt in foreign subsidiary rights. And what that means is, um, if your novel is published in English, Tan will then take your novel and go to all of the major book festivals in Frankfurt and Tokyo and try to sell them to a foreign publisher to have a translated edition come out. So she said, I can't help you with the English, but I can refer you to all of my colleagues. And so, um, so I said, yeah, I could, do, I could go to the SDSU um, writing conference and pay $350 just to get in, and then $50 for 10 minutes FaceTime with, a, with an agent. Or I can have Taryn like, recommend my novel. Mm -hmm. And so she did, for free. And five minutes after I said yes to her on email, another um, agent uh, emailed me. She said, I would love to read it. And um, several weeks later, I got an agent. Bill Marshall of the Marshall Lions Literary Agency took me on for literary representation. Now, before we go on to step four, which is submission, um, Jill had to mess with a manuscript because what the literary agent does is they um, basically at, at this point your novel has become a product and they're trying to understand how to sell this product to the right market. And so she wanted to make it as marketable to the publisher so that they would give me a publishing contract. And so one of the things she said was, well, the novel happens in Manila and in Oakland, in the Bay Area, but there seems to be a very uh, much weaker story arc in the Bay Area side, so you need to beef that up for at least one of the characters. And so I went back and um, you know worked on it for a couple of weeks, and when it was ready for submission, she said, okay, I'm going to send it out now to multiple publishers. So... Um, what that does, what she does is, um, she sends it to the first, the top ten, like largest pub publishers, like Harper Collins, uh, Simon and Schuster, Random House, and um, and then the rejection started to roll in. So I survived every rejection letter with retail therapy. <laughs> My rule was nothing more than twenty dollars. This was a five dollar artisanal, handcrafted doorstop. <laughs> which I took because I thought, you know that saying when somebody closes a door, what is the end of it? Open a window? <laughs> yes, that, that's the sound of music version, but the way I see it is when someone closes a door, you have to open it again, and you better not bang the wall behind it. So it's still there, um, and I still use it, and it still reminds me. But finally another bird called. Um, in April 2011, Penguin offered me a publishing contract when you get the call for a, from your agent saying that you have a publishing contract, I refer to it as <laughs> my Miss Universe moment. And I can say that with impunity because this year, Miss Universe is from the Philippines. <laughs> yes. so, um, so at that point, I remember, um, I think it was similar to when uh, my husband got tenure. He also had a Miss Universe moment. We were both kind of incoherent and not really able to formulate a sentence, but we were very, very happy. Um, but that was not the end of the path to publication. I had to move on to revision. Um, at that point, the editor, um, Sandy, Sandy Harding, uh, took, a, took a while to get back to me with her revisions. Um, 
and she gave a lot of thought to it because she was trying to understand how to make this novel work. It was very unwieldy and it was well over the, the maximum number of pages for a trade paperback. So I was assigned to um, my editor and a copy editor, and that's a sample of one of the 400 pages I had to revise. They use something called track changes, and every revision of every word, every misprint or every um, factual error, for instance, in one scene in 1969, I had a woman as she was um, dying um, thinking about a song from the Beatles, and the copy editor said, well, in 1969, that song hadn't come out yet. You have to come up with another song. So things as detailed as that needed to um, be fixed. And so 400 pages later, um, that meant, okay, revision means adding and deleting and rearranging chapters and proofreading galleys and renaming the novel. So from the original manuscript of 135,000 words, um, I was told I needed to cut it down to under 100,000 because otherwise the profit margins don't work for the publisher. You need to have between 90,000 and 100,000 for the average trade paperback. And if you're ready for young adults, I think it's between 60,000 and 90,000. So I killed a lot of babies at the time. I, I took out whole chapters. I, I printed out the entire book. I laid out the chapters on the floor. I color-coded them so I knew which ones happened in Manila, which ones happened in um, the United States. And so I could see physically if there was an, a balance numerically in terms of um, equal number of chapters in the Philippines, equal number of chapters in the United States. And then by, by uh, you know that scene in Julie and Julia? Do you remember that book, that, that movie? It's about um, Julie, she wrote, uh, she spent a whole year making Julia Child's recipes, the art of French cooking. And there's a scene there where they have, you know, words up on the wall and they're just trying to come up with a, a title. And that's basically how I came up with a mango bride. It was a process of elimination. So, so I was at the end of the line. I had to give up my novel to the printers and the publishers and let them do their thing. But as I was doing it, I, I was also opening myself up to new opportunities. In August, the unpublished novel, which was still called In the Service of Secrets at the time, was awarded the 2011 Polanco Award for the novel, which, is, which Taylor mentioned is the Filipino version of the Pulitzer Prize. I like to keep that big, it, it's that big thing, it looks like the World Wrestling Federation, like metal. I like to put it by the pots and pans in my house so that every time when I'm, every night when I'm making dinner and chopping garlic, I can look over at that and say, well, you know, I, I also have other skills. And <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Keeps it real. The novel also won me a Hedgebrook Writing Fellowship. And if you are a woman of color, or even just a woman, with a project, an artist, a photographer, or a writer, um, I would highly recommend your applying to this uh, fellowship because what it is is you get a little cottage that was mine um, on a private estate on Puget, on Whidbey Island in the Puget Sound in Washington State, and you can spend anywhere from two weeks to three months working on your art. There is no Wi-Fi in the in the in the uh, cottage that you work in, so you really just have to get down and write your novel. And people bring you food and you can you can just wallow in your art until you're done. And so the year I applied, a thousand writers worldwide applied and 42 were accepted and I was lucky enough to be one of them. Along with Gloria Steinem, who was at the time writing her memoir, which has recently come out. So I got to have dinner with her every single night for like seven days. 
The next step is planning a book launch. One of the things people don't tell you, even if you get a publishing contract, is more often than not, you don't get money for anything, not even bookmarks. So it was all on me to plan a book launch. And what it is, is because I have a background in advertising, I understood that a book is basically a product, uh, a book launch is basically a product rollout. And I had to launch my product well enough so that people bought it, and so I wouldn't be remaindered. So I had to print my own posters. A friend of my husband's built a website for me for free. And then I had to plan my book party. The book launch date was uh, April 30th. For whatever reason, they only come out with their uh, books on a Tuesday. So it's always a Tuesday. It's a very strange day of the week, but that's when they release the books, most publishers. So I sent out invitations. My husband designed e-flyers. And I cooked, on the day of my book party, 300 cupcakes and 15 pounds of pork adobo on toothpicks. I must have had 15 gall gallons of, like, I don't know, sangria. Um, and I remember we invited interesting people, those same interesting people I had written into the store. I said, well, you're in the book, and I'm, the book is out. Would you like to come? And they said, yes, and go play. So suddenly we had music, which was awesome. So 130 people came to the book party. And um, I remember thinking when all the RSVPs started rolling in that I started to get really panicky because I thought that's almost as many people as came to my wedding. But at <laughs> my wedding, I had caterers and florists and bus, you know, and busers and drivers and you know, bar baristas. And now it was just me and my family. And um, we had to do it, so we made it work. And so we sold out copies that night. And then I had to go on a book tour, which again is not paid for by the publisher by any stretch. So I planned to do seven cities in four weeks, and how I did it was I sent copies of my books to all of my friends in all the cities I wanted to visit, and I said, read this book. If you like it, can you plan a book party for me, and can I sleep on your couch? Mm -hmm. And most of them said yes. So, um, so the interesting thing is this novel, which is about the Filipino diaspora, was actually helped by the Filipino diaspora, because I had friends all across the world. So events in every city in my do-it-yourself book, book tour were set up by friends. The tour began with a TV interview in LA, um, it's a local cable channel for Filipinos, uh, and then I went on to Skylight Books in LA, a film producer named Will Tiao hosted it. And then more Filipino friends staged a reading at the Historic Eye Hotel in San Francisco. They also arranged for a second book TV interview um, by ABS-CBN International. Then I went up to Portland, uh, Oregon, where I got on my first radio interview. And then I did my reading at, in Portland. And um, that is an event that's dear to my heart because if, I don't know if you can tell, but that woman is tremendously pregnant. And I met her the day of my book party. And um, Amy, my friend who from college who set it up, said, well, this is Celia Ferrer. She's uh, nine months pregnant and two centimeters dilated, and she is going to sing for you tonight. <laughs> and I thought, well, as long as she doesn't drop the baby on the stage, I'm good. So she did it. She gave birth two weeks later. We went on from there. So from there, we went on to Seattle. And then I went across the country to the Washington, D.C., uh, where 100 people attended the Embassy of the Philippines event. And I went down to Virginia. By the time I got to Virginia, I had received some kind of an upgrade because I no longer had to bake my own cupcakes. It happened in a bakery, so it kind of, kind of went with that. And I 
met somebody who blogged about it on the Huffington Post. And then, then a funny thing happened. Um, the book began to resonate with mainstream Americans. So Connie Martinson, who runs or hosts the TV show, Connie Martinson Talks Books um, on government TV in LA, invited me for an hour-long conversation on her TV show. And um, I was really excited because many years earlier, one of the people who had guested on our show was um, a young senator who had just come out with his book, Dreams of My Father, Barack Obama. And I got to sit, sit in the same chair. <laughs> she thrills. So anyway, in Fallbrook, um, this other woman I, I had never met called and said she wanted to set up a reading. Many years later, I found out she was a survivor of domestic violence. So little things start to happen where the book tour was gaining a life of its own. And then National Bookstore in the Philippines sent word that it was going to be so much more fun in the Philippines, and they were going to fly me home. So the tour turned really hectic. It was loads for fun. My family lives in the Philippines. And I was basically given the star treatment. They put me up in a swank hotel. They did gazillion photo shoots. Uh, they did TV interviews, book signings, uh, reading for the Asia Society, which is, I guess, a really, I don't know, some hoity-toity East Coast think tank up in New York, but they have a branch in the Philippines. Um, and then I had a lot of literary salons in private homes. And I gave book talks for readers of all ages, everywhere from seventh graders who are too young to read my books, to high school students at my alma mater, to university lectures, book club meetings, and stage readings of scenes from The Mango Bride. And there were even talks with Regal Films, which is one of the largest film production companies in the Philippines for the movie adaptation of the novel. And then um, ambassador, then ambassador to the Philippines, uh, Harry Thomas invited me because he had read the book, and apparently he was dating a Filipina, and he wanted me to come and do a reading, but um, a typhoon canceled it, so I was heartbroken. But again, serendipity um, stepped in because months later, um, apparently the ambassador was ending his term, and he became um, ambassador, no, diplomat in residence for the Foreign Service at Arizona State University. And that just happened to be my next stop on the book tour. So he came. That was his fiancée, now wife. And um, they came to the book talk. So, and that's how the Mandibride got put on the reading list for all American diplomats destined for the Philippines. So uh, from there, uh, another friend, another college friend, decided that she wanted to uh, jump on the book tour thing. And she... Uh, she wanted to talk about her Harvard case, Harvard Business School's case study on the rising Filipino economy. So that sounds kind of like an odd pairing, but I like to think of it as I was the opening act for this, uh, I guess, this, the study of um, the Philippine economy. And um, it was a nice pairing because she got me to New York, she paid for that, and she got me to London, where we gave a presentation right in the middle of the Tour de France and somehow managed to get people to show up even though most of, the, most of the stops of the two were closed. So since the book tour began in May of 2013, I have traveled through 19 cities, seven states, three countries, and read to over 1,000 people. And uh, I'm a little tired, but it's always a lot of fun. So today, The Mango Bride is read in lots of places, in Mexico, Manila, Singapore, France, and by happy couples all around the world. My mother's friend, who actually owns a bed and breakfast, actually has a copy of it in every one of her honeymoon suites in the Philippines, which is very nice. 
So you can buy it all over the place, or you can borrow copies of the book everywhere from San Diego Central Public Library to Anchorage in New York. And there's a way that you can figure out where it is by, I don't know, it's called wildcat.org, and they track where your books are all over the world. It's really cool. So in 2014, it was named Best Contemporary Fiction at the San Diego Book Awards. And everybody asks me, will there be a sequel to The Mango Bride? And I say, no. However, folks got to rewrite my novel's ending by, by sending me into the world to put up uh, the Saving Beverly um, fundraisers. And what it is is um, after the book came out, all of these women started to write to me and say, to say that they um, felt particularly touched by the story because they too were survivors of domestic violence. And because I believe in these things, I thought, well, maybe this is a sign from the universe that I should do something more than just, you know, entertain people. So I set about putting together uh, a bunch of um, fundraisers, two of them, um, and I invited my now good friend, Harry Thomas, the ambassador, to come give the keynote speech. And uh, at the John Crock Center for Peace and Justice at USD, we raised nearly $10,000 for the Legal Clinic at Access, Inc., which provides low-cost legal services for domestic, uh, domestic violence survivors. And that saved nine immigrant women who survived domestic violence, and it granted them legal residency, residency in the United States. Um, there is an expanded, um, there are expanded protections for uh, the Violence Against Women Act, and that's um, helped them. So it was so successful, we hosted another a sequel in June, and we raised another 5000 for the Asian Pacific Island New Program. And since then, I've spoken about domestic violence on the Huffington Post Live podcast, on CNN, Philippines, various other TV shows. And as Taylor mentioned, it's now required reading in the Women and Immigration Law class that's taught at California Western School of Law. In October 2014, Grupo Planeta, Ediciones Madrid, released a Spanish edition. And in August 2015, National Bookstore released the Filipino edition, and then they flew me home to launch it. And the best part of that was they made a chocolate replica of the book. <laughs> it felt very strange to eat. So the story continues each time somebody opens my book. And I, I thank you for one day reading The Mango Bride if you haven't heard it or haven't read it yet. So I'm going to stop for a second if, in case anyone has questions about you know, the path to publication before I move on to reading an excerpt of the book. Yes? So I have a question. Like, um, so you were invited to all these speaking engagements of, like, that were like about economics and, and um, politics and like, the law school is involved. So I don't know, do you already have, have an idea of like the impact that it would have like in areas that aren't the humanities when you're writing the story? Or Absolutely. is that something that you were surprised by? Like, the I was really surprised. I was very surprised. Well, the reason why um, I was invited to speak at, the, uh, at California Western School of Law was the person, the legal director for Access, actually is an adjunct lecturer at California Western School of Law. And she was also the beneficiary, if you recall, from the fundraiser. And so um, she felt that um, because I had translated so many calls for the National Domestic Violence Hotline, I had an intimate knowledge of what goes on, if not like the legalities of it, but I had also translated for legal consultations um, for cases. So, um, so she thought that the book was a, a, very, a very good way for laymen to understand like the dynamics of domestic violence, and it was a 
for her at least, it was, a, it was a good way for people to begin talking about it if they suspected that a friend of theirs or they themselves were being abused. So it kind of grew organically from that. And then my friend, who decided that she wanted to ride on by um, you know, um, having me open for her so that she could then talk about the less distinctly less exciting business of the Filipino economy, just decided, I really like this book, and I want to talk about it. And if you will open for me, then people will show up for the book and stay for the economics. So yeah, it kind of worked out organically. That part I didn't plan. Yeah. Does anyone else have questions? Yes, Robin. Um, Marley, and I apologize if you covered this because I did arrive a few minutes late, but yeah. was your work on the National Domestic Violence Hotline, was that what inspired you to write The Megabride? Yes, yes. Um, one of the inspirations. And um, I noticed, um, like I've always done work for them because I do work for like the court system and Medicare and all of that. But right around the time that the economy was tanking, domestic violence calls started to increase. And finally, a social worker explained that when the economy goes south, domestic violence surges because, you know, all of a sudden you have a lot of men who are either laid off or they've had, they've been furloughed or they're really upset at work and, you know, they, you know, they hit the, the nearest, um, the closest person that's there. And generally, if they're already, they already have an immigrant um, wife with them and uh, that wife has not been allowed to work because they're that kind of controlling freak. Um, that person is considered deadwood, and that's usually when domestic violence begins. So um, when I noticed a sudden uptick, I used to do one domestic violence call a month. It started to become more like once a week. I realized that this was a trend that needed to be um, addressed, and it just kind of worked, like provided a dramatic arc for the story. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Do you wish that you had kept the original title to your book, or do you feel like the mango fried you know, that's a great question. Actually, I had no idea what to call it because that was the least of my worries. Um, and then a friend of mine sent me uh, a website that had this kind of weird algorithm that claimed that it could, it could predict whether or not your novel would be a bestseller based on the title. So you plugged in the, you know, if you had like a certain number of verbs or whatever. And I thought, well, it's about a servant and there are a lot of secrets, so in the service of secrets. But then I thought, it sounds like a CIA thing, and I, I'm not really writing for James Patterson's like, <laughs> like audience, so I was never really happy with it. And um, so my editor was wonderful. It really just helped me kind of figure it out. You know, she said, well, you know, you start with a plate of mangoes, and there is the, you know, there's this theme, the Philippines is, you know, known for its mangoes. And so it kind of worked backwards. As soon as we decided, okay, the mango bride, because there is a mail order bride, um, I thought, well, I need to insert that into the text somewhere in the book. So I actually had to write a separate scene where, you know, I, I created some slogan, Mango Brides Make the Sweetest Wives. So I kind of, after the fact, worked that in. So as you can see, the, it was constantly changing in the revision process. Yeah. Um, were there any other questions? Uh, yes. Um, so the work is obviously very close. You emotionally. Yes. So, how did you deal with editing in an emotional way? Oh, I just sold out. <laughs> <laughs> By then, it was so close. I thought, you know, they, they were like, you need to cut down like 134,000 words. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm just going to have to kill all my babies at this point. And so I looked at them, and, you know, she, had, she was great because she was 
one of these people who had been, um, she had been enrolled in a, doctor, a doctoral degree for literature when she decided that she went, didn't want to leave New York and all of her friends getting jobs were getting jobs in Dakota. So she decided to become uh, an editor um, in a publishing house. So she had a very nuanced way of looking at things and she said, you know, it starts out with these two older women, but then you see that the story arc really follows these younger women in the second generation. So she said, think about that when you're trying to reframe the novel. And so the original version was a chronological you know, story, very straightforward. You knew from the beginning what the problem was, all the way to the end. So Manila in the 60s, all the way to Oakland in the 90s. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe if I don't give it away all so soon, maybe I can just switch back and forth. Um, so that's what I did. I, I basically cut out 30,000 words, which was maybe five chapters. Yeah, it worked out, I think. Yeah. Um, so, are there any other questions? Because uh, if there aren't, I'd like to read a chat, uh, section from the book. And if we run out of time for the second one, I'm just going to have to. Okay. There's a question. Oh, yes. No. Oh my God, no. No, because um, when I was, well, I, as you can see, I was living, I lived with it for two years, and then, and then the copy editors had to come in, so I had to go over the same 400 pages, and then the galleys came in, and I had to go over that as well. So by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, I know it's a nice story, but I'm really tired of reading it. So no, I don't read it anymore, except for like readings like this, and it's just very short sections that I've, basically rehearsed, so, so yeah. Um, so I'm going to read a scene now, which is, um, there are two characters in the story, and one of them is Beverly. She's a daughter of a waitress, or she's an orphan daughter of a waitress. Her mother has passed away. And when she was born, her mother, who had high aspirations, named her Beverly after the hills, Beverly Hills, because she thought, in America, in Beverly Hills, everybody is rich and beautiful and famous and happy, and I want that life for my daughter. And so um, Beverly is visiting her mother's grave on Dia de los Muertos, or the Day of the Dead, in the Philippines, which is a whole day picnic. It's that uh, people bring their boom boxes and barbecue, and, and they spend an entire day and night there just partying with their friends. It's a big reunion. And in this particular cemetery, um, there are over 10,000 people who show up for that one day. Um, so now Beverly is coming to visit her mother, and that's when she encounters uh, a friend of hers, Lisa. Let's see. And uh, she's talking to Alfonso, who's an older woman who's seen her for the first time in a year. Now Alfonso looked Beverly over, her gerbil-like nose twitching with perennial allergies. You, you look like you haven't had breakfast. Heto. This pandesa was made fresh this morning. She held out a bag of rolls. Also, you look like you've lost weight. Are you in love? <laughs> Alfonso's large eyes twinkled above a raisin-sized mole perched on her right cheekbone. Who is your novio? Voila, I do not have a boyfriend. Beverly blushed, anticipating the usual jokes about her uneventful love life. Mama taught me not to trust men, you know. Iha naman. They're not all bad. Alfonso clucked. All you need is one good 
And then a minor commotion at the far end of the columbarium stopped her mid-sentence, her mouth forming a startled, oh. Turning around, Beverly was surprised to see a vaguely familiar girl smiling as she walked toward them. The girl wore a canary yellow sundress and silver hoop earrings. She carried a sheaf of long stemmed roses in one arm like a newly crowned beauty queen. Dios me salve. God save me, can it be? Aling Alfonso whispered. Yes, it's Lisa, Lisa Patane. The girl in question had been orphaned seven years earlier when her parents had perished in an apartment fire. Their charred remains had been buried together in an extra-wide niche just above the one that Clara, Beverly's mother, occupied. Like Beverly, Lisa had been forced to forego a college education and find a job after the tragedy. The two orphans had quickly bonded and Beverly looked forward to their annual reunions at the cemetery when the irrepressible Lisa would spend hours describing her latest romantic escapades. But today Lisa seemed different, regal almost. She sauntered forward, a clear path opening before her as people stepped aside to gawk at the man following in her wake. The gray-haired foreigner stood a head taller than everyone else, long of chin and short of neck. Mirrored sunglasses perched on a bulbous nose. As a couple neared, Clara noted the sweat crescents that darkened the armpits of his Hawaiian shirt, the Bermuda shorts that bared thick calves covered in pale fur. She wondered where Lisa, who worked the cosmetics counter six days a week at the mall, could have possibly met such a man. Beverly! Long time, no see! Lisa's voice was higher pitched than usual, her English broadened by an accent of that Beverly only heard in American movies. Kumusta na, Lisa? Beverly greeted her, girl, her friend, insisting on Tagalog. Who is that old man? Was he a friend of your parents? Lisa's giggle pealed like a church bell rung a mock. Of course not, ikaw talaga. Lisa pinched Beverly's arm, switching to Tagalog as well. You know the Americano. They always look older than they really are. <laughs> Honey, what did we say about talking Tagalog when I'm around? The man's tone was petulant. Honey, the mom. It's so hard to do that when we're in Manila. Lisa offered the man a pout, her scarlet lips just level to his chest. Don't you worry, love. When we get to America, I promise to speak to you English all day. Every day, just for you, okay? As she winked at Beverly, her eyeliner left a blue smear upon her cheekbone. Beverly, I want you to meet my fiancé, Lydell Kincaid Third. Fiancé? Beverly could barely hide her disbelief. How could Lisa have found a fiancé to provide the happily ever after ending that her own mother had promised her? Did her friend's two dead parents pull greater weight among the gods than her own never-married mother? But you didn't even have a boyfriend when I saw you last year. Lisa shrugged, slinging an arm around Lydell's capacious hips. When it's true love, there's no point waiting, right, Han? She looked up at Lydell, who puffed out his barrel chest. You betcha, sweetheart. This here is my girl. 
I knew it the moment I saw her standing there, holding all my letters, tied up with a red ribbon. Lisa Pelaga. Beverly grinned. You stole that trick from an old Sharon Conetta movie, didn't you? Lisa let out a delighted yelp and for the briefest moment reverted to the giddy teenager that Beverly remembered. Recovering quickly, she chirped, Beverly's being silly. She thinks magic only happens in the movies. Lydell took off his glasses, looking Beverly over as though she were a used car. I wish she told me you have such pretty friends, Lisa. If I'd known, I'd have brought Hank along. He leaned close enough for Beverly to smell mint from the gum he chewed. Hank's newly divorced, too. Could have been a love match. His grin bared teeth, the color of weak tea. I saw young. Lisa waggled her eyebrows at Beverly. Never mind. When I meet Hank in Naples, I'll tell him to start writing you. That's Naples, Florida to you. Lydell made the clicking sound again. Wouldn't want people to think I was some kind of mafioso. He chuckled at his own joke while the women traded puzzled glances. Beverly stared at the oddly matched couple. Lydell looked to be twice Lisa's age and more than double her weight. And yet, she had never seen her friend so ecstatic, nor, for that matter, so vividly made up. Plum rouge conjured cheekbones on Lisa's round face, and her crimped eyelashes glinted indigo in the morning sun. Quelling her skepticism, Beverly asked, So, how did you meet? We were pen pals for six months on Filipina Sweetheart. Then he came to visit me three weeks ago, and it was instant magic. He took me to dinner. He bought me flowers. How about he even chose his dress for me? Can you imagine? Lisa gushed. And it was so easy. I gave pictures to this international dating service, and in two weeks, I got letters from three different men. She pinched her bow's forearm. Bob, Lydell's letters, they were special. He's a stenotype reporter. In court, you know. Stenotype reporters, they have to write all the time. Wow. Beverly fixed a smile on her face, unsure what, unsure what exactly a stenotype reporter was. So what is the wedding? We'll do it in Florida. I wanted Sana to have a church wedding here, but it's too complicated. Did you know that you have to ask permission from the Archbishop of Manila just to marry a foreigner? It's like you Catholics never left the Middle Ages. Good thing I'm a, good thing I'm a Mormon. Just like Donnie and Maria Osmond. You know, Lydell promised to take me to Utah one day. Can you believe it? Lisa squeezed Lydell's arm, her nails like cherry lozenges on his papery skin. After he proposed, the agency took care of everything, including my fiancé Lisa. I quit my job so I could show Lydell around the country before we left. You know, when Lydell asked me to marry him, he showed me pictures of his house in Florida. It has three bedrooms, two bathrooms, and one big living room. One bathroom? It even has a whirlpool tub. There's a garden in back and a lawn out front. I could get lost in that house. Lisa leaned her head into Lydell's shoulder, oblivious to the murmurs of the bystanders who had abandoned their prayers for the dead to eavesdrop. I cannot wait to see it. Swept him on a month. What luck. Looks like they're moving into a palace. 
Beverly was surprised at that sudden pang of envy in her gut as she thought of the tight bedroom she shared with her roommate, the mossy shower stall, the roach-ridden kitchen in Cobao. So when are you leaving? In two weeks. This is the last time I get to visit Tata and Nana until we come back to Manila. And who knows when that will be. Oh, nga pala, I bought this for them. Lisa looked at the narrow ledge where her parents niche, uh, below her parents' niche, as though seeing it for the first time. Oh, but honey, our flowers won't fit into that small space. What should I do? Lydell scratched his hairy nape, unconcerned. Figure it out quick so that we can leave soon. This heat is making me thirsty for a beer. Lisa stood, in the, stood the bouquet on the ground and propped it up against the wall of niches, accidentally knocking off Beverly's candle. Hayamana, leave it alone, I will fix it. Biting her lip, Beverly pulled her mother's modest posy out from behind Lisa's roses. Beverly, favor lang, can you take our picture? Lisa waved an instamatic camera, pulling Lydell to the side of her parents' niche. This is the closest I'll get to introducing my, my papa and my mama to Lydell. Sayang, they didn't let, live to see this. They could have come to America with me. Beverly peered through the camera lens, motioning for Lydell to stoop so that she could fit both fa faces in at the same frame. Say green card, Lydell teased. <laughs> and Lisa giggled, bearing lipstick smeared teeth. Thank you. about that um, the story progresses and it Lisa's actually a minor character but that's the one incident that um, kind of persuades Beverly to just you know go for it and try the mail order bride option yes please Peter. I have a question for you and I mm -hmm. think it's going to be um, um, informative mm -hmm. and useful for our class mm -hmm. because we have a we're planning a public reading oh. for this next Monday yes so um this was wonderful, by the way. Thank you so much yeah, for the reading and the presentation and everything. <coughs> but I'm wondering if you can give them some advice about how to choose the the best passage to mm -hmm. read, to, read, to be read publicly. Uh, about um, you know, what was your 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 process in making the decision in choosing specifically this zine? Mm -hmm. And um, and then. Attached to that, I would like. I would like, and I was very curious about why, in the actual text, uh, suggested these these changes in, in, in accent. So oh. if if uh, yeah. uh, if I were to read this this same page, mm -hmm. will I read it with this accent? In will I be hearing the same accent? What what, mm -hmm. what, what kind of decisions in terms of the actual <coughs> selection of words uh, um, could make me as, as just any reader mm -hmm. to listen to exactly what, what, you, what you just read? Well, there are two things. Um, I wanted to do dialogue uh, because this novel is, uh, as much as this novel is about um, male order brides, it's also about class. Mm -hmm. And English in the Philippines is spoken in different registers depending on what class you're at. And obviously you've only heard the lower class, um, but then there's also a difference in American English. And so I wanted to see, I wanted to have a scene where um, those different registers were noted and described and portrayed. And also I wanted to make something that was, you know, relatively funny because I, I didn't want to go into 
there's another scene that's a lot more like dire and I that's kind of a downer so if um, if you're planning to read something I would say um, choose humor if you had a choice between two selections and the other thing is to really just practice because um, if you notice I I didn't look I, I've, I've been reading the same thing now for three years to so many people that I can I really only have to glance down every now and then at the text but um, what I notice happening a lot, especially among academics, is that they'll come with a really fascinating paper and read the paper and never look up at the audience. And once you lose that, that contact, then you might as well just mail it in. Um, <laughs> so, um, and I learned this from attending a lot of um, flash fiction open mics. Um, there still is one every first Friday of the month um, at the San Diego Writers Inc. at Liberty Station. You can come with your 500-word story and three minutes are very strict. After three minutes, they cut you off. And um, so you, stand up, you stand up there. When I used to teach uh, creative writing at UCSD, I would give extra credit to my students to come, and some of them actually did. Um, and it was great because you get to see how an audience reacts to you. You get to really distill your text so that only the most arresting portions of your story are highlighted. And you get to tell a story in as few words as possible that are working as hard as possible to tell a good story. So my suggestion would be, if you can read a, something that is a scene in and of itself, um, then that would be ideal. And also to practice it so that you're basically like telling the story and never like looking down at your page for more than a few seconds at a time. I think that's key. Um, I saw one person do it uh, a couple of years ago and I thought that's how I wanna read. I wanna really just be talking to the because what you are doing is telling a story. I mean, they can read the, the novel themselves if they do it, and they don't need someone to read it to them. They want to be told the story. They want a conversation um, between the writer and the listeners. Um, yeah. So did anyone else have a question? Yes. Yeah, so what kind of advice would you give for um, writers who are, are, who are starting out? Write so every day. Just write every single day. Um, uh, it's like the writing muscle is like any other muscle in your body. The more you use it, the better it gets. There's just no way around it. Sometimes, you know, I went through a period where I couldn't write anything for two years. I was just so completely burned out. And um, my therapist at the time told me, well, why don't you dedicate two hours in a day or one hour in a day to just thinking about writing. Even if you don't put anything down on the page, just either read something about writing or think about writing, or just for that moment, save it for just the writing. Do nothing else but write. And I think and if you do it, if you do it at the same time every day, that would be ideal. If you do it in the same place every day, that would be super ideal. Um, because then you, you get your, you motivate your mind to ready itself for the, the ritual because writing is a ritual. Everybody has rituals before they, you know, when you go out for a run, you stretch, you put on your running shoes, you have a specific route, and it's the same way with writing. Um, I read somewhere that Picasso started out every day of uh, painting, just like swirling paint, you know, paints and like dabbing them, and, and that was his way of warming himself up, you know. That's why there are all, any number of writing books that have writing prompts where they'll say, oh, write from this one story, or write from this one line, I am from, and then you know, just let it write and do free writing. Um, 
But really, you just have to do it every day. And take classes. If you can take classes, that's, that's really helpful. I also admired ballerinas because even the most um, professional ones had to go to class almost every day because that's the way you keep yourself limber. The mind is the same way. And read. Read a lot. A lot of good stuff. Yeah. Um, any other questions? I don't, yes. Um, do you feel like as a Filipino author that you need to bring your culture into like really unrepresented sort of um, Asian American, or Asian sort of field, or do the stories just kind of come to you coincidentally happen to be like from your heritage? Well, it's it's more that I'm, I'm interested in them and I, I have like a certain context from which I'm writing. So I don't feel like this messianic zeal to say, I'm going to speak for the Filipino people. But it's just like it's more familiar, so it's easier for me to go there than to say write about Slovenia. Um, <laughs> or as a transgendered person, I would have to do so much more research <laughs> to do that. So it, it's just, I wouldn't want to say it's a laziness thing, but it's just a context thing. I, I start from that context. Um, although the second novel that I'm working on is, uh, it's a step removed from me because it's about Filipinos living in America in the 1930s. Um, and that's a very interesting thing because it's set in San Diego and um, I'm learning so much about the San Diego and Southern California history. Um, so that's, it's, it's been an incredible like, uh, test to, do, to capture all of that from another era. Yeah. Yes? Was Lisa inspired by anybody you met? Or like was her experience inspired by anybody you've talked to? Mm, yes, I would say many of the domestic violence calls in the novel are almost verbatim reproductions of actual calls I've had to do. Um, I changed their, you know, I changed their identities, of course. But yeah, and yeah, Lisa is an archetype. Like there is that one particular girl who's always like super vibrantly like made up, standing next to Reese calling GI Joes um, when the, we had American bases. And uh, yeah, so she's definitely a type of woman um, where they, they're almost like technical or vibrant when they're with their, with their foreign partner. Yeah. Yes? Well, um, I'm just, I mean, I'm, this is kind of like a follow up for your question. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about the body experienced here and uh, especially the of the victims and in terms of uh, how are they present in this writing and then as, as well as your own experience as a writer of color mm -hmm. I mean how are these two linked together through your writing or how do these two um, what are the sources for this ju juxtaposition in your, in your novel and this work how do they come together? Uh, the body and my experience as a minority? Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting question because um, honestly, I didn't become a minority until I came to the United States. Up until then, I was, <laughs> I was majority. <laughs> like, I was majority in race and, you know, everything. Uh, so it was very curious for me to come to the United States and have someone in grad school say, <laughs> doesn't matter how pale your skin is you'll always be colored in America. And for me, that was a real aha moment. <laughs> and I was like, 
really? And then I had to kind of figure out what does that mean exactly. Um, so, whereas my husband grew up as a minority in the United States, he had, he responds to it very differently. That he has a very different relationship to being a minority in the United States than I do. Like I kind of had to learn. <laughs> like I was, I, I said all kinds of uh, odd things when I was newly arrived, and I newly I was newly arrived at was it twenty eight. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't really think about that. You know, I just write from, from where I am. Um, it's like related to her question. I don't, when I write a story, I don't think, well, now I'm going to be the spokesperson for people of color, you know, cisgendered women kind of thing. I just write the story and see. I mean, somebody, I, I read somewhere that a story is written twice, which I thought was very wise. It's written the first time by the writer. And it's written the second time by the reader because that reader will bring to the table all of his experiences and prejudices and biases and understandings and read or and rewrite the story as he understands it. So I guess if a reader read it, depending on their position, and understood it as affecting, as placing his or her body in a certain place and his or her ethnicity in a certain location, then great. <laughs> yeah. I tend to take more of the position of Amparo, who was kind of from the social economic strata that I came from. And she had a very different trajectory than Beverly, even though the paths cross eventually. Uh, yeah, was there anyone else? I know, I, was this an hour class or an hour and a half class? I wasn't sure. I don't want to keep people. Oh, no, you're doing fine. If you want to read for, from oh. your second. Um, yes! Uh, um, project? It, I would love to if you will indulge me, uh, because uh, because the KKK has been in the news recently, and I actually have something with the KKK. And Mexicans, it's all in. So um, the second novel, like I said, is about a murder in a taxi dance hall in 1935. There was a taxi dance hall. And uh, I don't know if anyone knows what those are, but this is basically you pay 10 cents to a woman for a minute long dance. Um, and why this became necessary was that in the 1930s, all the way until 1968, I think, or 1948, I want to say, um, it was illegal for American women to marry outside of the race. So if you're a white woman and you married a Filipino, you lost your statehood. You became a stateless entity. And so Filipino farm workers who came to the United States, they're all bachelors, they're in a, anywhere from 18 to 40, they needed some way to interact with women, and so taxi dance halls evolved. So there has been a murder. Eli has been accused of this murder. He's uh, escaped to San Francisco, but they captured him, and the police, Detective Moynihan and Detective Kaufman, are driving him back down to San Diego. So this is the scene where they roll into uh, Salinas on the way down. You deal with the gas, Monahan said, glancing at Kaufman. I'll get us lunch and take this fella to the little boy's room over there. He hauled Eli out of the car and kept a firm grip on his arm as they walked out to the diner across the street. Look, Mata. The deal is, you'll have the cuffs off while you do your business. But try and make a run for it and I'll shoot you dead. Monahan, got it? Monahan muttered to Eli. I understand, Eli replied. It was nearly two in the afternoon by then, and the place was empty but for one frizzy-haired waitress doing a crossword puzzle by the cash register. 
At the sound of the door swinging open, she looked up with a smile at the blonde, blue-eyed stranger. The smile disappeared when she saw who he dragged in, into the diner with him. Didn't you see the sign out front? She set a hand on one hip, striking a pose that seemed both reproachful yet flirtatious. There's no Filipinos or dogs allowed in here. Eli flinched but remained silent. He'd grown so used to such sights that he no longer felt the urge to throw a rock through the window upon which this one was posted. How'd you know it was Filipino? Moynihan asked. Seen enough of them to know. They live in camps and work in the farms, just like the Okies, the waitress said, looking Eli up and down. Troublemakers, the lot. Threatening to go on strike just before the harvest season. You don't even get me started with their floozies at the dance halls. I wouldn't give that boy a glass of water, let alone lunch. This one won't give you any trouble, ma'am, Moynihan said, putting on his most reassuring, friendly neighborhood cop voice. I'll make sure of that. So, you a bounty hunter or something? She nodded at Eli's handcuffs. Inspector Moynihan, San Diego Police. He tilted his head toward Eli. This one's a fugitive, caught up with him in San Francisco. He won't be here long. He just needs to use the facilities before we head on down to San Diego. She tucked her gum into a paper napkin. The facilities, she stretched out each syllable of the fancy word, are off limits to colored folk. You can take him over by the trees and back. She cocked an eyebrow, a coy tilt to her head. Of course, you're welcome to use the restroom yourself, so long as you board, order something. Don't mind if I do, Moynihan grinned. How about you fix me three ham and cheese sandwiches to go while I take him outside? Moynihan nudged Eli. You heard the lady. Get a move on. As they turned to go, the waitress called out. If you don't mind my asking, what's he going to jail for? Rape? Burglary? She raised a pencil eyebrow. Murder? Nothing you need to worry that pretty little head over, ma'am, Moynihan replied with a wink. Just set me up with those sandwiches and we'll be on our way. A snaggletooth row of sycamore trees separated the diner's back lot from a lettuce field. Several hundred yards away, a labor gang of harvesters made their slow bobbing crawl toward the opposite end of the field. Their voices drifted back on the afternoon breeze, just loud enough for Eli to discern the familiar cadence of their voices, of their speech. They were Filipinos. Moynihan watched Eli, walked Eli up to the nearest street and wheeled him around so they stood chest to chest. This is as good a spot as any, seems like, Moynihan said. Without warning, he reached down to unbuckle Eli's belt. What are you? Eli exclaimed. He struggled to get loose, but Moynihan stomped on Eli's foot, crushing his toes. Aray, putangina! Eli crushed, cursed, crying out in pain. Hold still or I'll block you, Moynihan said, unbuttoning Eli's trousers. Now squat. What for? Eli glared. Just take off the cuff so I can kiss. What kind of fool do you think I am, punk? Moynihan hissed, his breath hot on Eli's cheek. Like hell I'm taking off your bracelets. If you made a run for it, I'd have to shoot you. Be damned if you go back to San Diego with a dead perp. Now do as I say and squat. Hooking a thumb into Eli's waistband, Moynihan yanked hard. As pants and underwear crumpled to his knees, a fathomless dread came over Eli. The same autumn breeze that had carried the farm workers' faint laughter now whipped at his thighs and genitals. 
He had heard how others before him had been hauled out of bars and bunkhouses and dance halls and shot or beaten and gotten to be shot or beaten to death. Would he be another nameless body rotting in the field? I ain't got all day, Mata. One hand pulled out his pistol and pressed it ever so slightly against the vein that pulsed on Eli's forehead. You pee like a girl now, or hold it till we get back to San Diego. You decide. Eli lowered himself awkwardly, hindered by his hands, shackled behind him, and the gun that traced his descent. Face burning, he stared at Moynihan's scuffed brogues and urinated as weeds prickled his bare bottom. You done yet? Moynihan grabbed Eli by the armpits and hauled him back up. No, Eli muttered, the last drops of piss trickling down his left thigh. While Moynihan refastened Eli's trousers and belt, he glanced over his shoulder at the Filipinos in the field. At least they were too far away to see. Moynihan returned Eli to the squad car, then strolled back to the diner for the sandwiches. Kaufman eased Eli back into his seat and leaned forward and reached for the handcuffs. I'm taking these off so you can eat, but if you give me any trouble, they go right back on. You hear? Kaufman said. Sticking the cuffs in his back pocket, Kaufman rolled the window down a few inches and shut the door. So he gets the sandwiches. And um, Eli turned away from the window, pretending indifference, even as he listened to the two cops standing in front outside by the car's hood. You think Mata could hang for this? Kaufman asked. Your guess is as good as mine, Monahan replied. He does. Let's hope we don't get stuck driving him up back north. Executions only happen in San Quentin, so he'd have to wait on death row up there. Wouldn't that be something? Kaufman spoke through a mouthful of ham. San Francisco's all right, but it's way too cold and the drive is a killer. You don't know the half of it. Moynihan stopped chewing to explain. Back when I worked in San Francisco, my buddy and I had to run men up to San Quentin now and then. We got to know the prison warden who manages executions. No walk in the park, that job. They said they have to boil and stretch rope for two years to make sure there's no bounce in the hanging. The day before the execution, they do a dry run with a sandbag that weighs the same as a prisoner. Why does it have to be so complicated? Kaufman sucked mustard off his thumb. I just thought you kicked the, school, the stool and let him dangle. Jeez, that's how Clanston lynched the Mexicans. Is that right? Monahan cast a sharp glance at Kaufman. I didn't figure you to be a... Nah. I had nothing to do with it, Kaufman said, chuckling. But my buddy across the street, Dwayne, his folks belonged. Anytime something big happened, he'd come running over to tell me. We tried to sneak into the clan's big hall in Idaho Street, you know, over by North Park. But they kicked us out on account of we were just 12 years old. Bobby's uncle said we could try back in a few years, but then I got busy training to be a cop. Kaufman squinted into the afternoon sun. The clan, they get a bad rap, but you know, they were just regular folk, the Kendalls. Our family sat next to each other every Sunday at the Blessed Chat Sacrament Church. Just regular folk, eh? Mine and I cocked an eyebrow. Well, the clan's got nothing on San Quentin. It's precision work, this hanging business. If the drop's too short, the fellow's neck doesn't break straight away like it's supposed to. Then it takes half an hour or longer for him to suffocate. His face swells up body starts to jerk. Sometimes he shifts his pants. Meantime, the five friends he's allowed to invite to the hanging are just sitting there and Moynihan ex ex ended his explanation with an expressive shrug. Damn if they have to watch that, Kaufman muttered. That ain't the worst of it, Moynihan continued, warming to his morbid anecdote. To the drops too, 
too deep, the noose snaps the head right off. And then you've got a bigger mess to deal with. He bit into a sandwich and chewed thoughtfully. Jesus. Kaufman looked over his shoulder at Eli. Can't say I envy the poor sod. Eli pretended not to have heard, but every nerve in his body tingled like a just-struck match. Apart from Lucinda and Wings, he didn't know who else to invite to his hanging. Would Lucinda even come? He couldn't bear to think of it. Only one thing was certain. Somewhere in San Quentin, they were stretching rope. Thank you.